Welcome to the Need More Buffs podcast, the unofficial Lightseekers podcast sponsored by DeliveryCrab.com. DeliveryCrab.com, your number one source for Lightseekers cards and three points of healing. Welcome back, Seekers, to episode 55 of Need More Buffs. I'm your host, Matt Sonnenberg. In this episode, I talk with John. You may know him from the app as JSNiceGuy21. But before I even knew that's who he was in the app, I met John at our Delivery Crab Tournament in Toledo, Ohio last December. John was the winner of this tournament, and he has a very unique way of going about building decks, I think. Or at least this deck in particular that he used to win the tournament. And in this episode, he is kind enough to walk us through his process. He, he takes us through the development of this deck and cho- shows us where he draws from, from his past experiences, from his experiences with Light Seekers, his experiences with other players, and how they think, how they act, and how that all plays into what he decided to do with this particular deck. Along the way, John poses a few challenges to other players, not only to think about deck building differently, but also a few specific cards that might help you build a better version of this deck or just a a, a good deck to look at in the future. Moving forward as we're in this, this classic format and such, There's a few tidbits he drops that I think you'll want to pay attention to. In any case, before we dive straight into the interview, I just want to take a few minutes to keep you updated on what's going on in the Lightseekers community. If you haven't heard yet, the Lightseekers app is now available on Steam. That means you can play it on both PC and Mac through the Steam app. If you haven't gotten a chance to do that yet, I highly recommend you do so. It gives you a lot, it just gives you another option to play the game. And if you are looking into streaming the game, playing it on Steam is going to make that a lot easier for you. I've heard the questions a few times already, so I'll answer them here as well. Yes, all the, the platforms, whether it's mobile on Nintendo Switch or on Steam. It's all cross-platform. You can play your friends on any of those devices from any device, and you are able to link all of your accounts. So you just have to link them once, then they'll be linked, and no matter what device you play on, when you get new cards, they'll be available on whatever device you decide to play on that day. And then I want to keep you updated on the tournament scene as far as Delivery Crab tournaments go. We had our Delivery Crab tournament in Indiana a few weeks ago in January. Unfortunately, the day of our tournament was also the day of a very big blizzard in Indiana, and that did prevent a lot of people from coming out. But we still did manage to have 12 people attend the event. Thank you so much for doing so. I, I, I'm not trying to... Uh, shame anyone for for not coming out. I I understand safety first. It was dangerous because of conditions all throughout Indiana. So I'm very thankful for those of you who made it out, and I'm glad everybody made it there safely. Um, I, I, I will be back in the area eventually, but until that time, we do have a tournament coming up in New Jersey. 
Uh, that's our next delivery cab tournament on February 23rd. And then we do have another planned for Chicago at TPK Gaming in Illinois. Uh, that one is for March 23rd, I believe. So keep those dates in mind. You want to make it out to those, if you're, especially if you're trying to catch up to our boy Nuon, who has won the past two gold-level tournaments. I, I, I believe I've heard that he is not going to be able to make the February 23rd tournament in New Jersey. So if you're trying to catch up to Nuon in all in, in that points race, the New Jersey tournament on February 23rd is going to be a fantastic place to do that. So I hope to see a lot of you there and you can rack up those points together. All right, with that being said, I think it's about time to jump into this interview. As always, the the deck list that we discuss as well as any other links we mentioned in the show can be found uh, in the show notes. The show notes for this episode can be found at deliverycrab.com slash 055. That's deliverycrab.com slash 055. I think that's enough of me talking for now, so let's get into the interview and see what John has to say. Welcome to the show, John. How are you doing tonight? Doing all right. Wonderful. So I know this is this interview itself is already a little bit overdue, so I apologize to everybody else out there. On the other hand, it, it, it never really was going to have much of a chance of mattering too much, in a sense, because of the timing of the tournament. It was like two weeks before we jumped into classic mode, and that's, I mean, there's nothing I could do about that. So we have John here. He won the Delivery Crab Ohio tournament, so congratulations. Thank you. And I've wanted to get him on because he had a deck. I've seen a version that was close to it before, but I don't think it was this exact build at all. So I, I want to talk through that a bit, talk through some of your theories on, on the game and deck building and such, and uh, see if this deck is at all feasible moving forward, or this type of deck even. So... Um, wh- why don't you, since this is your first time on podcast, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about your gaming background, like I'm assuming that light seekers is not your first card game. No. So I'm pretty boring when it comes to, to gaming history. <laughs> you know, I, pl- I played, I learned how to play chess is the first game I learned how to play. Okay. Um, things my dad taught me and, uh, I always enjoyed like you know, having to outthink your opponent or playing ahead. You know, I was always a forward thinker, mm-hmm. uh, looking ways to like progress the strategy, you know, trying to figure out how to combat what your opponent's doing while with progression. And, you know, it was all fine and dandy, but, you know, eventually got bored of it. <laughs> you know, we got black or white pieces and that's it. It doesn't change much. Yeah. Uh, when I got into college, I uh, had one of the guys in my dorm that was playing Magic the Gathering. And I'd had cards, but didn't really quite understand the game or how it could be played. And so, you know, he taught me how to play. And, you know, that we're talking back in 2001. So I pretty much solely played Magic the Gathering from 2001 up through 2012. Wow. That's a a pretty lengthy time there, yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of any real big accomplishments, you know, I, I grinded out a lot in the eternal circuit and magic. So 
probably, you know, some small contributions in terms of metagame development in the legacy community. But, you know, other than that, you know, just, you know, your typical magic player grinding FNMs, whatever, nothing too fancy. Fair enough. Uh, what what really changed things, the dynamic change was uh, starting a family. So as I had kids, you know, I didn't have time to play test for hours a week anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes with, you know, getting into some some small school games with friends or, or that just to kind of pass time. I actually gotten into Dice Masters, you know, where I met a lot of the guys that were playing Light Seekers. And unfortunately with with dice masters dying off then um trying to look for something else to kind of feed the the competitive fuel you know tampered and playing some magic again but learned quickly like you know these uh these younger guys without (laughs) larger schedules like keeping up with them and the metagame shifts is just insane so um tony one of the guys that actually came down to the tournament there with me had shown me this game that a lot of the guys had started playing and I, I really liked, I really liked how, you know, the game was easy to learn and games went fast. Yeah. You know, so, you know, easy to teach, easy to try and like, you know, build a community to, to, to kind of play the game. And then in having the app, you could pretty much pick up a game anywhere. So I'm, I'm still a pretty young light seekers player. I want to say, you know, when I first picked up the app, we we're probably talking back around, I don't know, September okay. of 2018. So I think midway through rank season one. And what I found really interesting is on the surface, the game reminded me of like a, a burn mirror match in Magic. Okay. Where, you know, your your life total is your resource. Mm-hmm. Some people may say in like concept, it's a very, it's a very simple strategy, but you want to bring your opponent's life total to zero before yours is at zero. <laughs> yes. In terms of progressing your board state, that typically comes at the cost of, you know, giving up some of your life total. Yeah, and definitely. in light seekers, it kind of works the same. So, you know, it's a very familiar kind of a strategy in where it's almost like a pendulum. You know, you you want to damage your opponent, and you want to prevent damage to yourself at the same time. Um, but you know, the interesting thing was you only have thirty cards to work with. Yeah. So, how do you kind of balance out that strategy in in the case where your opponent's trying to to accomplish the very same thing? <laughs> so, you know, you have to have a certain amount of of damage prevention, a certain amount of healing, and still maintain enough damage saturation to, uh, you know, bring your opponent down to zero. Yeah, it's a big balancing act for sure. It's kind of funny. So how it developed is, you know, first it started with like a very simple deck, just, you know, quite literally playing the pre-constructed decks just to kind of get a feel for the game Mm -hmm. and how the state of a game will progress. And then as I explored like different aspects of, you know, strategies, what I found was that having the symmetrical effects that would damage and heal at the same time would be most efficient use of cards. Sure. So 
you know, in, in looking and building upon that strategy, finally becoming comfortable enough, you know, I got into the app to try and just get more exposure to how card interactions work and kind of get a feel for where the meta was at. And so I figured, you know, why not just, you know, jump into rank play? You know, I went from the opposite side rather than having, you know, a bunch of digital cards and trying to find physical cards. I had this, you know, all these physical cards to actually scan it. Up, so, you know, didn't have to really, you know, spend much at all. And uh, in starting with just small strategies, um, you know, I actually, I think one of the first heroes that I built with was Bubbles. Just because <laughs> I, I liked having... Was it called like the the mastery or supremacy or yeah, whatever superiority? Yep. So the superiority for for two different elements. Yeah. Uh, because in in any game you want choices. Mm-hmm. You know you want to be able to play as many things as possible and uh, certain combinations of cards based on uh, the board state or lines of play that you wanted to take would either you know involve playing two air cards like. Um, for example, wanting to go Mari Bard into Thunderslug. So you you have to be able to have the superiority with the air element. Yeah. On the other side, you know, cards like Droplet, where it heals for and replaces itself. So yep. any types of these cards in the game that will effectively do something for free and where they're not burning in action or the effect or impact that they're having on the state of the game is significant enough that it forces your opponent to change their strategy. So as I got into ranked play, what really surprised me is one of the first times I saw this type of a strategy of a deck was actually playing against a blue-green. There's a blue-green deck. It was also the first exposure I had to seeing how utilizing the blacksmiths um, to play multiple color elements was there. And I had not even thought of the mill strategy because just reading the rules, the empty deck explanation was very confusing. <laughs> yes. I, I think that confuses a lot of people just trying to read it out of the rule book. But I, I think most of us now who've been around at least for a few months have gotten a pretty good handle on it because it, it, it comes up more often than you think. Yeah. And then the, the other aspect of, you know, that empty deck strategy for winning a game that way is how tiebreakers work for games. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if you could almost always win game one, in game two, you, you're you always fighting to keep your life total up. So sometimes it, it could be extremely difficult to end a game two where your life total is higher than your opponent's. Yeah. Because typically they're doing damage and you're not. So you can put yourself in a lot of positions then where you lose game two on the, the tiebreaker for life totals, putting the match at one and one, then you go into sudden death and you have nearly zero damage cards in your deck. You know, it involved a little bit of, of elegance and planning. And I have not played in a premier level tournament where, you know, you actually have to build into three separate heroes, at least for with the sideboard strategy, I had, I had been able to come up with a plan. So in terms of this deck, with what I finally landed on was, you know, trying to come up with the most efficient 30 cards that I could. Yeah, makes sense. When I first got exposed to the blue-green strategy, I thought, well, this is pretty pretty crazy with how it works. And Living Whirlpool was a card that I just like, well, this has got to be the best card in the game. 
it removes all buffs your opponent controls and, and it heals you. Like what? What more could you ask for in this? You know, in a type of mill strategy. Yeah. And you know, with the uh, recurring cards like you know Root Slinger that were available and items to you know help you draw cards as you know your opponent wasn't doing anything. You know, it just seemed like like it had all the pieces there. But the more I played it, I always ran into this conundrum of you know how do you how do you win game two? Sure. And as as the strategy progressed, and you know, I have to give props to Tony for taking the beatings and in play testing back <laughs> because it is a brutal it's a brutal strategy to play against. But you know, I guess to kind of circle back, why play this type of a strategy? Yeah. Towards uh, the beginning, you know, when I was talking about how I got into Lightseekers and what I liked about it, it is this like pendulum kind of style game. You know, the tempo swings back and forth, and you're hoping that at the end of it, you're able to double up on a turn where a big combo or a combination of actions will, will you know, get you there. Mm-hmm. Um, so Crystal Core is a card that in the meta, you know, it really, it really punches a hole in that strategy because it forces you to have to play another turn. You know, yeah. uh, anyone that, that has learned how to play against Crystal Core, you're trying to hit them within a low enough point health points that on your next turn, you know, two damage spells within the range of, of a you know, four to six damage spell, two of them strung together is going to pop the Crystal Core and then, you know, KO them. Yeah. So over and over again in trying to beat crystal core it's a it's a really it's a really tough card to to deal with in general and a lot of people aren't playing items so in terms of looking for cards to fight the strategy you ended up like with a almost a third of your deck that was dedicated in trying to to combat this type of of the deck and then when looking at the other big decks in this format you know, Zuna Rush, uh, Tempest Control. I always butcher her name, but uh, Salini. Yep. I think. You know, these are all these are all types of strategies that the the hero's ability themselves allows them to you know draw cards without utilizing any resources or, or actions. They they help them find the extra cards so they're they can load their deck up with more cards that do things rather than cards that draw cards. Yes. So when I found this problem where I kept, you know, in trying to fight Crystal Core and, you know, align a strategy that can can beat these other meta rush decks, there's just not an there wasn't enough deck choice left that I could do anything with to to ensure that, you know, you can keep all these matches around like 60 to 65 percent. So. I figured, you know, if you, if you can't beat the strategy, why not <laughs> figure out how it's working and and uh, come up with the best and most efficient version of it you can. Yeah. And so that brings you to Ushi. Ushi is unlike any other hero in that it allows your combos to, to cost less. And not just that, but, you know, being able to pick which elements you don't want to, to utilize. Mm-hmm. And when you take it a layer further, what what the second thing I ended up finding out is because all these meta heroes have abilities built in that are drawing them cards, you know, like Dolo, 
and Dolo, Tempas, Cellini, and um, Zuna, you know, saying. So what I found is that, like, having draw cards in the deck to try and keep up with them was the initial strategy. But I found myself being in turns where I'm wasting an action to try and draw into answers. Yeah. So after a little bit, I, I figured, well, if I'm spending a draw spell to try and draw into an answer, wouldn't it be better to just increase the density of healing cards in the deck? And okay. by doing so, I realized like I don't have any more bolt cards, you know, left in the deck. So it was just kind of one of those things that all roads pointed to fish singer Ushi for the sake that I could play bolt combos, but not have to have any bolt cards in my deck. And what that immediately did was that allowed me to take Dust Fiend, I believe. Can be any element. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in being able to start eliminate cards, now that that opened up the, you know, how we can add, um, you know, look at more colors and, and what else that we wanted to do. And when I first experienced playing against anything where I saw like the, the text flash for Forge Wall, it was when Lone Shark Reefy was, uh, you know, first <laughs> in the game. Sure. I had experience again playing against the card. So I had to come up with ways on, on how to try and beat both of those strategies for decks playing Crystal Core and decks playing Forge Wall. So in reverse engineering um, the cards to go into the deck, it's like, so how do we best then close those gaps? And what I came to was just looking more into, you know, finding the cards with symmetrical interactions. So Crystal Maze, you know, is just an amazing card in how it's designed. It gains you back life from the damage that's dealt, and it will mill a card away from your opponent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of like an auto-inclusion. Um, once you don't care about dealing damage to your opponent, uh, Confused Shaman is the best on-the-spot life gain because you no longer care about the drawback. Yeah. You know, as I referred to it many times, my MVP Bubblefish. You know, <laughs> the, the best damage reducer that exists because typically, you know, you're you're doing things around the front end, you're getting the benefit of the three, and, you know, and I, and I apologize again for not knowing what card names are, but the, the uh, green forest buff. So... Yeah, the, mo- the monster defender? Yes. Yep. So with Bubblefish, they can do nothing the first turn you play it, and you don't care because you're getting added benefit of, of uh, damage reduction. Yeah. With Ostrich Defender, well, I just won't do anything for one turn because it, at least it starts shrinking. Mm-hmm. So some of the cards were really easy. Then it was a matter of trying to figure out how do I combat other, like, how do I combat other strategies that may be doing this? And the real innovation came when looking at Dust King and the combo selection itself. With Tornado, Storm Calling, uh, Shifting Winds, Flood, and Crushing Rapids, mm-hmm. and a Dust King, you can actually play all of the cards without ever having to run out of any cards as long as you have Dust King back. Because Dust King will play the Storm Calling, uh, Storm Calling plus the Dust King will play the Tornado. The Tornado will play either the, the Crushing Rapids or the Flood, Blood will play Crushing Rapids or Tornado, and 
you know, so at that point, the name of the game is staying alive. Yeah. The hardest part about the deck is, you know, how to balance out the amount of buff removal you need to beat Sicario decks and the life gain you need to beat all the rush decks. Mm -hmm. And over and over again, uh, that bounced back and forth. And the Sicario decks that were the hardest to beat were the ones that were splashing soul with the item that lets you draw the extra card. And it was such a difficult strategy because they could pretty much do whatever they wanted to <laughs> fill their hand up and, and lay out a perfect board state. Yeah. So what I ended up settling on was a split of Battleborn Oppressor and one Mari Bard uh, because it allowed you to trap them between Mari Bard plus a Crystal Leech or Battleborn Oppressor plus a Thunderslug. And the reason it's important is Fish Singer Ushi does have one huge drawback, and it's no superior, no superiority. Yeah, no superior elements at all, and that's yeah the hardest thing to play around. But like I said, I mean, the way you work out the combos makes it totally worth it. Yeah. Really, the rest of the shell is just based on math from there and you know, balancing things out. And one of the core strategies of the deck is, you know, allow your opponent to peck you down to around 14 and just hover at 14. <laughs> so the uh, the most damaging card in the game that, you know, people would play is if you're playing against Dolo. So yeah. against Dolo, it's, it's a completely different game because um, they can strip your defend cards. In my opinion, a well-built Dolo deck is going to play Shadowy Figure as well. So between uh, Lava Runners and Shadowy Figure, it's very easy for them to strip all your water cards and your defend cards. Mm -hmm. But uh, Volcanic Eruption, well-placed in the middle of all that stuff, you know, is the the largest amount of, uh, you know, singular hit damage short of the tech card that does 14. Yeah. But the good thing about those, those higher damage hitting spells is that once you get set up with Crystal Core, and forge wall you want the bigger hit to pop the the crystal core because it you can very easily just blacksmith it back and you don't have to even play any healing spell that any uh card that heals that same turn mm-hmm. then the the last few cards you know a creeball jester being included in the main deck just at the end of the game sometimes the best strategy for for combating a mill strategy is to draw your entire deck yeah if you deck then they can't mill any more cards out <laughs> so you don't want to give your opponent out and if they've drawn their deck then i can draw my deck and i'll come out with a gesture and you know the the rest exactly. and they're just out. emergency systems work exactly as they're supposed to be the uh the key thing is like the only other strategy with the deck is you want to try and split your water cards as much as possible. So in the early game, depleting all your water cards because you can only play one a turn. So if you're ever in the position where you're, you know, you're trying to rely on a confused shaman and vitalizing fog to get your life total back up, you you can't because fish and Garushi won't allow you to play them. Yeah. So the deck is not forgiving to play mistakes. You can uh, tilt really quickly and you know, forget, like, I'll give you something as simple as a turn where I'm like, okay, well, if the Sicario deck dumps out a couple of buffs there, 
I'm just going to Mari Bard. Well, then you realize, well, the only buff removal I had was Thunderslug, and I can't play both of them in the same turn. Yeah. Timing timing out where, where your cards are. Knowing knowing your opponent's deck was more important, I think, in some cases than knowing the card list itself. Sure. So partly in playing this deck is what helped me become attuned to the rest of the metagame because each line of play is pretty much a math-based deck on what cards can they damage me with and where is my life total sitting at now. So in just doing doing the math, um, you know, you, you can usually put yourself in where, okay, in this scenario they can get me to, to two. In this scenario they can pop my crystal core, but then it's my turn, you know. Mm-hmm. So by by learning all those different lines of play and the cards that your opponent's going to play, you can almost put yourself in a position where like a Zuna Rush deck was was nearly a buy, and I say nearly a buy because you're not guaranteed all your items. Yes, you know a Tempest Tempest Rush type style deck is a little bit harder to combat. They were more likely playing uh, Anti Magic Pulse in the main deck. Yep, um, that's a card that can really bite you because when you're on seven and you drop an emergency system and they drop that card, bad things happen. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. So the one interesting thing I, I noticed about your deck that I haven't really ever gotten to talk to you about until I saw the list, but this I think is the first deck I've seen that actually runs three blacksmiths. Like a lot of people thought they would need a full play set of blacksmiths early on, but quickly many people adjusted that to two and in, in some cases even just one. But did you ever try this deck with less than three blacksmiths? So. No. <laughs> and the the reason why is like the blacksmith has kind of a dirty little secret when it's attached to crystal core is anything that isn't red. It typically doesn't matter. Like Battleborn Oppressor is a card that for some reason in the metagame, even, even in top level ranked matches, it just never caught on. I think it's just that, you know, like I was saying, you, you only have 30 cards to work with and your damage saturation has to be high enough to win a game yeah so some of these utility type cards they have great effects but they don't hit that hard you know Mm. it it wasn't really likely that you'd see the card so red you know unless you were playing against a red strategy which brothers and dolo are probably like the biggest ones you'd have to worry about and with brothers you'll you almost never trigger their thing and you the number of attack spells in the stack is is next to nothing Mm. but you have to of blacksmith as a card that typically gains you for life um and comparable to a card in magic that would win lots of games is a time walk consistency is what wins tournaments mm-hmm. shaving cards to you know have more things that do things i mean just looking at the list like what would you play instead of it like you're you're probably upping your delivery crabs in your main deck sure and Against another mill style strategy, you want less to deliver crabs in your main deck, and you want you still want the consistency to get your cards on because you, you don't want to be drawing two cards a turn to get gestured before you can you know set up any foundation of you know play a card, draw a card, and and hover at seven cards. So blacksmiths are what make the deck work. And I think the last innovation that I added was 
running into a lot of matches where, you know, you wanted to reloop back. So, you know, it, it probably wasn't necessary in terms of the meta of the tournament there in Toledo, but uh, definitely in the higher rank matches, you know, you, you strip away the element of having to do damage to try and increase the consistency of your deck in your, your win percentages against most of the field. Mm-hmm. Well, part of what, what the game looks like in that top level play is trying to limit your, limit your action consumption as much as possible. And the best way to do that is, um, buffs with abilities or items with abilities. Sure. So, Spirit Gate in in this deck, one Spirit Gate can affect in effect equal about twelve cards. <laughs> uh, you know, you you get back uh, Storm Calling and Tornado. You use Tornado to get back four other cards, and then use Storm Calling to get back all of your stuff, including your Tornado, to get back four more cards. Yeah, absolutely. So it it is just. It's the best singular card for its effect with everything else that's in the deck. This deck, in some in in some ways, I almost feel like shouldn't exist because why Stormcalling doesn't have burn, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I think that's something that's changing uh, eventually. But yeah, that kind of leads us into shortly after this tournament, we we hit the classic stage and. I mean, just looking at the deck list, we all know that this deck is no longer valid for classic play. So have you tried to adjust it at all to make anything work? I mean, with Fish Singer Ushi being gone, like, is any of this possible anymore? Or have you just, like, scrapped it all together? It's the good news, bad news thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. the good news is that... Almost the entire deck is salvageable, except for two cards. One of which is emergency system, which you still get a copy of with the classic format. Yep. The other is forge wall, which is the deck. Like that's just that's what makes the whole strategy work. Having that free, constant, nearly irremovable damage reduction mm-hmm. uh, is makes the deck so insane. Without fishing or Ushi, the math doesn't work. You now have to include bolt cards. It's really, really clunky, but it's still plausible. Okay. And I'll give it away because it's not my top. It's not my top <laughs> right now for uh, classic builds, but it's definitely a lot of fun. And so trying to gain the forge wall effect for this never ending stream of damage reduction, yep. you can't specifically get that. But what is really cool is the interaction you get from Shoal Slayer Basco. Okay. And one of the new item cards, Jadewing. <laughs> okay. So with some well-placed cards, and like I said, I won't, I won't give you my exact deck list, but let's just say that there's a lot of experimenting to do with Jadewing, Bubblefish, and Shoal Slayer. All so, right. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, leave it to the, the people out there to figure out the rest. It's a really cool interaction of cards. So if you're if you're looking to kind of get that same type of effect where you have, you know, damage reduction, damage reduction, damage reduction. Once you can play Bubblefish every third turn, it's a better... <laughs> but, the big but is, you know, you're you're looking at three cards compared to having one card. Yeah. That you 
kind of keep in circulation. And and as I mentioned, probably the most important thing in light seekers and building a deck is card efficiency. So whatever the strategy is or the thing that you're trying to do, you know, for your deck to to win a game, the card selection for what can accomplish that most effectively while inhibiting your opponent's strategy, that's what makes it such an intriguing thing is in in my opinion, I think that at least sixty percent of light seekers in strategy is how to construct your deck. Sure. Um I, I'd give it as much as thirty percent in terms of luck because this is the <laughs> game I've ever played that you don't get to mulligan. Sure. So I think deck construction and and card choices in that deck deck construction. Uh right now in a lot of the, the high rank play on the app a lot of players are working to try and tune out classic decks. It can be frustrating because you're in a sea of, of people who will still play metagame, whatever you want to call the eternal format now. You know, the the cards that they're banning, once they go away, it, it does change the dynamic of the game a little bit. And sure. it definitely opens up, you know, rooms for other strategies. Like Rush loses a lot of power and even the classic format. I've I've tried to build the most aggressive versions of Zuna and uh, Tempez under the classic shell, and they're they're good, and you know they can still have their fast punching. I'm gonna blow your life total away in in a matter of three or four turns, mm-hmm. but you have to rely on luck for that. So the consistency to see those go through and and do very well in a tournament, I don't see as much. Yeah, um, and, and I think that's a good thing for the game in the long run. Yeah. And Tempest is really cool in the sense that it's not like it's not Zuna for what the strategy is. And it allows you to play more of a toolbox kind of a build. So, you know, they, it's going to be really interesting to see how the metagame shakes out uh, once the app is forced into classic. Yeah, yeah, which will be coming up very shortly uh, as of this recording. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where that goes from here, but we are all anxious to see exactly how it plays out. So one thing I've heard people say about kind of that mill deck strategy is, I mean, it's definitely once you realize what's going on, it's not always fun to play against. But you sitting on the other side of it, do you have fun playing a deck like that or is that purely i I don't care about having fun i know this can win type of deck so it depends like you have to know your environment yeah um you're if you're going to let's just put it right out there losing isn't fun (laughs) it's true and i think in some cases you know people's initial instinct is well, I'm not playing an unfun deck to play against, and they wear that like a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. It's fine and all, but in in any competitive game, playing the best strategy is playing the best strategy. Sure. And if, as a player, you cannot take on playing the best strategy for the point of winning the tournament because it's it's not the most enjoyable deck to play, I. I just think then state of the casual tournaments and, you know, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, just leave the ring to the big boys. Yeah. Um, yeah. But for me, um, this deck, you're always, you're always the underdog. Everybody wants you to lose mm-hmm. and it's very easy to lose. And 
I, I would challenge anybody, build a deck under the current format, take that deck list I played, and sit down and play a game. What I can guarantee people is that they don't need to take it and play it in a tournament. You play this deck list to figure out how to play it and to play it well and to consistently win games. Your your technical play in Lightseekers will be off the charts. There's not really room for error. And what it forces your brain to do to understand the cards that your opponent could play and identifying different lines of play based on what cards they are playing. Mm-hmm. That's that's really what it did. It really accelerated my understanding of the game to the point that, you know, on the on the app, I have like this was my this was definitely my core deck that that accelerated me up the chain. But I think it's just like a lot of people couldn't figure out that by taking all the draw out and using Dust King to chain up and down your combos, you know, that's what made the deck so resilient. Yeah. But I also had my Korra deck that's basically like a blue-red deck. Every card in there heals and does damage and gets the extra pop from Korra. Mm-hmm. I had Sicario deck, which, you know, I had two Sicario decks. One was very aggressive strategy. Um, that was just packing three of everything. And I had another one that was a little more of a control control aspect that tried to utilize Spectral Web. And uh, I would like to do, like, I was one of the first to put it out there, but I had a Flying Fortress combo deck with Star Tamer Calic. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of diverse decks that you could you could win with, and you know I think one of the one of the most interesting decks to solve playing against because I think it's a little bit better than just a glass cannon is Selene Moss Armor. Sure, and that's a deck that. It uses its discard pile better than anything. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And you know the the one tidbit I guess I can I can give listeners is it hasn't mattered much in the past, but I think the card to look at and looking towards the future um, for both solving classic and as classic goes to the wayside, it's going to be font of misfortune. Yeah, I I think it's very overlooked right now. I. I even going to a few tournaments since since Ohio, even I haven't seen it as much as I expected. So yeah, that's a lot of information there. I think, as you were saying to, there towards the end, just even though this deck itself isn't valid anymore, it's worth playing against or playing it yourself against a friend who can take a beating. But that <laughs> it, it's something that is going to help you learn the game better. Understand what your what you need to do, what your opponent is planning on doing. I I think it all comes back really probably to your chess background. Yeah. It's a nice way to wrap things up, I think. So, no matter how you want to look at it, the deck you built is a good deck. And like you said, whether or not you think it's fun to play or fun to play against or not, it doesn't really matter. It won you a lot of games and that's what you were there to do. Congratulations. That's all I can say. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And when you look forward towards, you know, future play is, you know, Tony, I went down there with and, you know, play tested a ton. He said like, this is a deck he wouldn't play because his brain just doesn't work the same way that mine does. And, you know, the math behind the deck is something that you, you've got to be prepared to keep up with. And, you know, sometimes putting yourself in a position to 
deal with mental exhaustion can can also be the wrong strategy for a big <laughs> sure all right john well thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show i I'm, I'm sorry it was a little bit later than i expected but we got you on here and i think we got some great stuff for the listeners out there so i hope they enjoyed listening to it as much as i did talking to you about it do you have any last minute tips or advice for people out there who are I mean, especially now we're getting a big influx of people from the Switch and soon to be the Steam version of the game. What would you tell people who are just getting started? You know, the the biggest thing is don't be afraid of, of the, you know, the game being out. The accessibility of cards is going to be is going to be there for certain. So very, very simply is just play the game and give it a chance. I think the, you know, the first five to ten games it may feel like there's not a lot of depth, but once you really get into to the deck building aspect of it and the combinations of cards, um, this is a game that maybe 20 cards are the same. Those other 10 slots and, and how they work and just the possibility of not having that that maximum hand size, you know, you, you have options to work with every turn. And I think uh, just starting out, the key thing would be that you need buff removal. Building a deck without any buff removal puts you in a bad spot. Yes, and definitely, as a newer player, you know Storm is probably an easier one to pick up because it can be kind of a one-dimensional strategy, and where just rely on your damage reduction and use all your burn spells. You know, crash the boards. Uh, it can be a very effective strategy, especially uh, with Storm Strike. I think that's going to be a key key card in the storm strategies. You know, from from the buff side of things, if you have more resilience and you don't mind your stuff getting removed, I think shadow shadow buff decks are going to be you know huge in the upcoming meta game. But the kindred starters are pretty good out of the box themselves. Yeah, uh, a yeah, few builds are good to go. They do a very uh, good job the, putting those together. Yeah, I know the rift packs are harder to find. Uh, but please, everybody, I say, take a look at the new items that it offers because we had a chance to do a uh, Lost Relics sealed event, and there is so much more item interaction and different combinations of things you could do with items than meets the surface. And um, those Rift Packs open up so many possibilities with Kindred that maybe weren't there at first glance. So. Yeah. Take a look at the items in Locked Relics packs to answer all the forums. Are they worth it? Uh, definitely. <laughs> That's what we like to hear. All right, John, thank you so much for coming on. Congratulations once again. And I, I, I hope we can get you back on here with another victory very soon. I'm definitely looking forward to March. Hoping to make it out there to recess games. Unfortunately, I, I had to skip on Chicago. We had a uh, big food drive here in the Detroit area. So I guess if, if I could just give one last shout out, you know, yeah. support your food banks, it's something near and dear to my heart for poverty alleviation. Every little bit helps. Wonderfully said. All right. I think that's all we have for now. So thank you again, John, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care, Matt. And that is it. Our interview for episode 55 with John, a.k.a. JS Nice Guy 21. A 
big thank you once again to John for taking the time to walk us through all of your processes. It was fascinating to me. So I hope some of you out there got some good information out of it as well. I've already mentioned our upcoming Delivery Crab tournaments in February and March, both on the 23rd of February and the 23rd of March. So I hope to see you at some of those. But keep your eyes peeled because we will also be releasing details very soon if we haven't released them already by the time you're listening to this. But we have details coming up on our online tournament series. That's right. Delivery Crab will be hosting an online tournament series as well. And that's going to be a lot of fun, I think. We have a lot of stuff going on in the near future. So all I can say is Delivery Crab is here to stay. And I hope you are too. That's all I got for now. Until next time, I got some more deliveries to make.